This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I am Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we begin our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Chrono Trigger? Chrono Trigger! Now, totally a Final Fantasy game. It doesn't have either the words final or fantasy in the title. That's true. We'll get to all of that in just a moment. We'll we'll explain what it is we're doing here and do our best to justify why this is happening. But let me spit a couple of facts at you to begin with. Chrono Trigger was released for the Super Nintendo in 1995. It would later be released for the PlayStation in 1999 as part of the Final Fantasy Chronicles uh, Uh collection. Uh That sounds like justification. Yeah, it does. Uh, New and nifty anime cutscenes. Uh, It was released again on the Nintendo DS in 2008, and most recently for the PC on Steam in 2018, two pretty universally awful reviews about the way it was ported. Uh, It has, across all of those formats, sold 2.36 million copies, which is good, but by no means great. We're going to hear some ridiculous numbers here in a couple of games in the Final Fantasy franchise, but still... Uh, especially considering that a lot of that does come from the original Super Nintendo release. That's pretty darn good. Chrono Trigger was designed by Hironobu Sakaguchi and conceived by Sakaguchi and Yuji Hori, the creator of the Dragon Quest series. It was directed by Yashinori Katase, Takashi Tokita, and Akihiko Matsui. Now, we already have to slow down for just a moment because there are a couple of new names here and one old name that we need to remember, because it's worth pointing out who each of these people are, especially the ones we haven't yet discussed. We have already mentioned Takashi Tokita, who was the lead designer on Final Fantasy IV, uh, a director on this game. He would go on to direct Parasite Eve. Beyond that, markedly impressive resume, not a whole lot of history for him. Next on our list, Akihiko Matsui was one of the three directors for this game, uh, but also mainly a designer of battle systems for Final Fantasy IV, V, Romancing Saga II, Chrono Trigger, Saga Frontier, Legend of Mana, Final Fantasy XI, and perhaps most notably, Final Fantasy XIV, A Realm Reborn, which is an absolute blast to play and a revolution in console MMO role-playing games. So obviously he is still with the company, but also still with the company, those of you who really know this stuff, a name probably stuck out to you here, one we haven't said yet on the podcast, but the guy who is really in charge of this Final Fantasy stuff now, Yashinori Katase, he directed 
Hold your horses. Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy VIII, and Final Fantasy X. He is the producer of Final Fantasy X and the Final Fantasy XIII series. He is marked as a producer on the upcoming remake of Final Fantasy VII and is pretty much in the credits of anything in the last 10 to 15 years that has the words Final Fantasy in it. Yuji Horii, whose name I already mentioned, also helped to write and direct this game. He was the creator and director of Dragon Quest and still is to this day. Masato Kato is credited really as being the mastermind behind Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross. He's seen as the main writer and the guy who conceptualized these stories. He would also work on Radical Dreamers, Xenogears, as I mentioned, Chrono Cross, and Final Fantasy XI, and parts of Final Fantasy VII. The art was not done by Yoshitaka Amano, but instead by Dragon Quest and far more famously... Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z artist Akira Toriyama, who is by far the most famous name that has been said on this podcast, probably more than Sakaguchi or Uematsu in the wider world because Dragon Ball Z has had such an insane crossover appeal. And finally, the music is composed by Yasunori Mitsuda primarily and Nobuo Uematsu. And that really brings us to the reason why this group of people... I had to go through all those names and tell you who they are because these guys were called the Dream Team for a reason. On my top ten list of video game composers, Nobuo Uematsu is a clear number one, and Yasunori Mitsuda is a pretty clear number three. And there's a separation between my top three and everybody else with Koji Kondo of Nintendo fame ranking number two so you've got the second and third greatest composers of all time working on this the two greatest minds behind the two most successful japanese role-playing games sakaguchi and hori working on this you've got kira toriyama of dragon ball z fame lending his creative license to this uh yeah yeah, it's a pretty impressive lineup. I don't generally get into the behind-the-scenes stuff when it comes to the, the the media I enjoy. Sometimes I can find that a bit... Uh, it takes me out of it sometimes. At the same time, knowing who these guys are and what they've done in the past and what they will continue to do in the future, as far as Chrono Trigger is concerned, it, it's extraordinarily impressive, and it I think it lends some justification to why we decided to talk about Chrono Trigger on a Final Fantasy podcast. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because we haven't mentioned that much, and I feel like the, those are the kinds of things we're likely to miss on this podcast because we both go out of our way oftentimes not to hear about the behind-the-scenes stuff because we don't want to ruin, for example, Final Fantasy XV the way a lot of people did because it wasn't Final Fantasy versus thirteen, and they followed the development of that game for five years or something like that. Uh, but I think it's worth pointing out that as I did research into this, I found that this was an incredibly troubled production to make Chrono Trigger, that it was an idea that three people had on a plane, that it was just a nightmare to bring together. It almost killed the primary composer. It uh, it, it was a not an easy production by 
any means, but it's just a reminder that there, there are three directors on this game. You know, usually you want one guy to run everything through, and that would be terrible for most modern games to say there are three directors on it. But somehow, despite all of that, Chrono Trigger is quite simply one of the most celebrated video games that has ever been created. Its overall reviews at the time show that maybe it was ahead of its time and appreciated more in hindsight. They weren't terrible. It has a 92 Metacritic score. That's very, very high. It only received one perfect score I could find. That was from GamePro at a 20 out of 20. And IGN gave it a 9.5 out of 10. But there were a lot of 9s. There were more 8s than I was expecting to see from some reputable game sources back in the day. But this game has been much more appreciated over time. Games Radar named Chrono Trigger the second best Super Nintendo game of all time, only behind Super Metroid. Uh, in 2012, Games Radar placed it the 32nd greatest game of all time and the greatest Japanese role-playing game. Game Spot included Chrono Trigger in their greatest games of all time list, which does not rank them by number. It came in 28th all-time top 100 on a list conducted by Famitsu Magazine in Japan. Game Informer called it the fifth, their 15th most favorite game in 2001. The staff thought it was the best non-Final Fantasy title that Square had ever produced. In 2004, Chrono Trigger finished runner-up to Final Fantasy VII in GameFAQ's first video game battle series. I participated in a couple of those back in the day. The early days of the internet and gaming <laughs> forums. Uh, in 2008, readers of Dengeki Online voted it the eighth best game ever made. And IGN updates and, and reevaluates their top 100 games list every once in a while, uh, doing so uh, a number of times. But it placed fourth greatest game of all time in 2002, sixth in 2005, 13th later in 2005. I don't know what hmm. happened there. Hmm. Okay. Second in 2006. Okay. 18th in 2007. I, I guess a lot of good stuff must have come out in 2007. But then back to second in 2008. So they've ranked it fourth, second, and second in their greatest games of all times list. Understanding that hundreds and hundreds of video games are released every single year. The lowest we saw here was 32. Again, pretty impressive. So it should be noted at this point that we are going to forego our normal interlude episode where between each Final Fantasy game we discuss maybe a, a larger trope or some kind of broader topic regarding the entire franchise and just do this Chrono Trigger thing before getting back to the sixth installment of the Final Fantasy franchise. And ironically, I suppose... We're going to go a little bit out of order. We're going to break our chronology, if you will. We've been going along, you know, in the order that the games came out. Chrono Trigger did come out after Final Fantasy VI. But we decided we really wanted our conversation on six to go right into seven because there are so many interesting things that happen with the development of the franchise with some of the philosophies and ideas with steampunk and cyberpunk and all of that stuff that we're going to have a fun time with the interlude episodes between six and seven so we really didn't want our conversation on chrono trigger to get in the way of that and i also think we didn't want our chrono trigger conversation to get stilted 
by feeling like we needed to rush through it to get back to Final Fantasy games. All right, so Drew, why do you and I feel like we can justify to ourselves, because really, we are the only ones who decide what does and does not uh, appear on this podcast, how are we justifying talking about a game that is literally not a Final Fantasy game? Right, I think the first poll is to say, well, it's made by a lot of the same people, and it was made by the same company. I just ran through a bunch of names, Yashinori Katase especially, and Hironobu Sakaguchi especially. I think Uematsu as well, that he had to step in and finish the soundtrack, and we'll get to that eventually. And in addition to the company and the people working at the company who made it, there are some pretty clear thematic ties to Final Fantasy games. There are a lot of tropes that we will talk about as we go through a lot of connections where you can clearly see that this very easily could have been a Final Fantasy game. In fact, it almost was in some ways in its original concept. In a way, I tend to think of Chrono Trigger as being a close cousin to Final Fantasy. If we think about Final Fantasy of having its own multiverse and the Chrono games having their own multiverse, I think there must be a couple places where those multiverses intersect or, or abut or are, are very, very close to each other, if not overlapping. Uh, because, like you said, some of those themes cross over. But at the same time, there are other role-playing games, Japanese role-playing games, that share themes. Like, we're not going to talk about Dragon Quest, or at least we're not planning on it. We're not planning on talking about Super Mario RPG or Breath of Fire or Secret of Mana, but we are talking about Chrono Trigger and probably in the future Chrono Cross. Right. And part of that, to be completely honest, is that other than Super Mario RPG and Breath of Fire, we played Secret of Mana, uh, one of those games. Uh, yeah. Not a whole lot of Dragon Quest, but we haven't played those as much. I didn't play Parasite Eve. Neither one of us did. Um, right. And similarly, Parasite Eve, at a production standpoint, was once going to be Final Fantasy VII. It, it, they kind of, the city landscapes departed at one point from each other, and they became two separate games. But all those games share a legacy, so why aren't we talking about them? Well, again, we can point to the Final Fantasy Chronicles release and say, right. why did they decide to include it with a Final Fantasy game upon re-release? they clearly think that it is closer that it is more closely tied to the Final Fantasy franchise in some ways than those also it's got bigs and wedge it has it has if we if we think about the multiverse overlap perhaps bigs and wedge fell through maybe this is the bigs and wedge from Final Fantasy 6 and uh Tritoch didn't kill them so much as sent them to the Chrono Multiverse. Maybe. Sure. <laughs> it has often felt to me like Chrono Trigger could have been the first spinoff of Final Fantasy rather than, for example, Final Fantasy Tactics. It could have been Final Fantasy colon Chrono Trigger. And then we would have, you know, the Chrono spinoffs and the Crystal Chronicles spinoffs and the Tactics spinoffs and the World Ofs and the so on and so forth. Yeah, I think if the art and design had been by Yoshitaka Amano, it would basically just be considered a Final Fantasy game. That's the one thing 
that at least on first glance really sets it apart. It does look different because there's a different artist doing <laughs> the work there. But beyond that, and I, I think the final thing that we'll note is, of course, that it's just awesome. We oftentimes begin these conversations by talking about how we got into any particular game. We went over this in the first episode of this podcast that the first Final Fantasy games we ever bought were 6 and 4, and we bought Chrono Trigger and Breath of Fire right along with it, and it was all a part of the experience. But when that guy booted up Chrono Trigger in the store, and we saw it on the TV, and those and those balloons started popping and that weird seagull noise. <laughs> yeah. We, we were just in, and, and I think that because the Chrono series is just two games and a non-canon digital short that we'll get into at some point, uh, it's easier for us to talk about them because we did play both of them, and they do have this unique place in video gaming history. As much as I love Super Mario RPG and Secret of Mana and never really loved the Dragon Quest games, but that's fine, I get why people do, I don't think anybody would claim that any of those are Square or Square Enix's crowning achievement or even maybe the crowning achievement in video games. And as we've just gone over, Chrono Trigger, it's rare to keep it out of the top 10. If somebody's making a top 20 video games of all time list, it's unlikely they're going to leave Chrono Trigger out. And we're going to discover why that's the case. That's probably the main reason. We want to talk about why that's true, and so that's why we're talking about it on this podcast, because it has meant probably as much to us as any of the games in the Final Fantasy franchise. So we often like to pick a lens through which to understand whatever story we are talking about. In this case, the most obvious lens to look at Chrono Trigger through is the lens of the time travel story. So one of our questions going forward will be, why are time travel stories tricky? And furthermore, what is the merit of trying to tell one? Why? Is this an interesting thing? Why is this a thing we keep doing over and over again? There are some obvious parallels I imagine we will try to make as we go along. Marvel Comics, X-Men especially with Days of Future Past uh, is, a, is a prime lens through which to understand Chrono Trigger. Doctor Who, of course, the Time Lord himself or herself as it is now. Uh, Superman does some time traveling sometimes in an interesting way, sometimes in what seems to be a silly way, that original movie. Uh, <laughs> the Time Machine by H.G. Wells is a pretty obvious parallel we'll want to make. Donnie Darko, Back to the Future, Sound of Thunder. Uh, that's where we get the if you step on a butterfly metaphor. 
So all of this is about trying to understand what would happen if. We talk about speculative fiction. Speculative fiction is what would happen if. It's what would happen on the personal level, what would happen to me, what would happen to the people I know and love. But it's also speculative on the grand level, the, the, the sociological level. What would happen if I stepped on that butterfly? Would we have voted for the fascist instead? Uh, what would happen perhaps on a cosmic level, which I think is what Days of Future Past and Chrono Trigger are going for? What would happen on, be, on both the personal and cosmological level, which is what Doctor Who does over and over and over again? Can I interfere in the events of my own timeline? Doctor can't, but then sometimes she can't, right? And so why is that interesting? And does it matter if, if time travel is consistent throughout your 70-year run, Doctor Who, or is it okay if sometimes, because it, it is thematically important or thematically fits, we can, we can tell a more personal story and have, uh, you know, the time demons don't show up this time. Oh, Flash, DC, the... Uh, the DC comic shows are doing time travel all the time. Another good example. So I imagine we've got plenty of other pop culture lenses through which to try to understand why Chrono Trigger does it so well. I agree. And I'm glad you put it that way. And I'd like for us, and we will, to celebrate all of those things. But I, I do think that there's a there's a kind of stigma about telling a time travel story. It can be tough to do. And especially in this age we live in, we've talked a lot about the way people like to tear plots apart and find plot holes. You're doing time travel, you're almost certainly going to create a plot problem somewhere. Uh, I know people get really upset with the, we talked about Days of Future Past, X-Men and what they've done with their timeline. People are starting to get really miffed at the, the Marvel timeline and the way it's gotten thrown off in the movies and some interesting things there. But I do think that Chrono Trigger stands among one of the least scrutinized time travel stories I've ever seen. And I did read the original Time Machine by H.G. Wells in high school, and it stands up incredibly well. But, you know, beyond that, it's pretty easy to tear these things apart if you're really inclined to do so. Like you said, I think most of us in spec fic or who enjoy it are more likely to just sit back and ask the big question and not worry too much about whether or not it works. But I do think it's in Chrono Trigger's favor, that it's a pretty tight and really well thought out time travel story. Sure. I feel like Time Machine by H.G. Wells cheats a little bit. And since it's like one of the first and classic examples that, I don't know, (laughs) I, I don't want to not give it credit, but at the same time, the way it is able to tell its story without tripping over its own time travel laces is it takes us like 30,000 years into the future. Right. And it never resolves anything at the end of that book. Spoilers. If you haven't had time, to, if you really wanted to read H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, and I'm just now spoiling it for you. I'm sorry. But that book just ends with him and then he disappears. At some point he gets into the time machine and he never comes back to modern times. And that's just it. Right. Um, because what's important about that book is the themes of what does it mean to be human? What is humanity? What does it mean to be uh, a sapient, free-willed being? All of which are classic time machine or classic time travel questions, but the way t- the time machine book overcomes the problem of paradox is to just totally subvert it, just go way far into the future, and paradox doesn't matter anymore. 
Agreed. And and I think that's where, oddly enough, Chrono Trigger takes some more interesting risks and manages to avoid some of the pitfalls that Marvel and X-Men and Superman and, and some of those have had over time. Well, and that, that leads me to another potential time travel story problem. Though whether or not you think it's a problem depends on whether or not you want everything to fit up nicely. There was that uh, Ben Affleck time travel movie from... Paycheck. Paycheck from 2003. And I only know that because I'm looking at the internet. I don't... Uh, I, I think that is a decent movie. I like it well enough. I think Ben Affleck and Uma Thurman are cute together. It's nice. But at the same time, it is a story that just fits neatly. It Which takes agency away from the characters. That is, everything fits because everything has already been done. They figure everything out because they leave themselves clues, which is clever, and I like it. But at the same time, they are successful because they were already successful. And you can, you can seem extraordinarily clever as a writer if you lay out all these little clues for yourself and then just make everything fit neatly. I actually prefer time travel stories that are more messy because I think that's more interesting. That is, sometimes things don't work out the way they worked out before. Maybe that is a problem of perception. The way I saw it was not necessarily the way you saw it uh, or the way a character saw it. And so I think it is, I think messier time travel stories are more fun and more interesting because they're not so easily fitted all together. Uh, another example of this well, it's kind of an example of both. It's a short story called All You Zombies by Robert Heinlein. And it is about a person who's part of this Time Bureau agency thing and they sort of stop. It's really unclear what exactly they do, but you get the impression they stop terrorist attacks. And this person is convincing another person basically to join up. And you, I don't want to spoil this because it's a really neat... Uh, story and it's worth going out and finding. You can find it on the internet, no problem, and read it yourself. So, but it does that thing where everything ties neatly together, and so it just sort of like it's it seems like you're clever because, or or it's that trick where writers can seem clever where that because they just give you all the things and then make everything fit, and it's kind of easy. But at the same time, it takes this, it does this sideways move where it has created for itself. A paradox and maybe that was the point so it is at once neat and tidy but also messy and what the heck and that brings us first we're still not even starting the plot of this game we'll get there but we'd like to ask big questions at the beginning of the last couple of games we did it with four we had a couple of bigger questions we wanted to keep in mind throughout the game and then ask again at the end and see what we've learned i started to write down one or two for chrono trigger and came up with what <laughs> one, two, seven three seven uh, and and they're all huge questions and i want to begin with do we have free will which was our question from final fantasy one right and how much responsibility do we bear for the consequences of exercising that will or what if we choose not to and this gets back to your question about the tidy stories i feel like tidy stories and i'll say what i think chrono trigger is arguing already here tidy stories tend to argue they're kind of is no free will right in paycheck right. there wasn't really anything you could do but put all the clues back together like you said chrono trigger and the ones that get a little bit more messy argue that you do have the ability to make changes to the timeline or 
whatever your consequences as the player, or we'll use the phrase again, the hand of fate, uh, there appears to be very real consequences in Chrono Trigger, which, at least in-game, I think they argue that their characters do have free will. Yeah, uh, I, I think that is absolutely right. And that's also one of the reasons I really like Doctor Who. The Doctor is all about there are consequences to actions, not only to the Doctor's actions, though his, or now hers, are often outsized, but to everybody's actions. There are no unimportant people. Uh, and while not everyone's got the advantage uh, of being able to bop around in a TARDIS or an Epoch, it's still important what you do, how you do it, and why you do it. And that leads us directly into our second question. Does the ability to manipulate time make free will irrelevant? So let's grant that we all have free will and we can make actions and choices that have consequences and repercussions. But if someone can just travel through time and mess with my ability or change circumstances so that I can no longer do that, do I really have free will? If there is time travel, if there are time travelers, can anyone's choice truly be free if it can be that powerfully manipulated? So keep that in mind. Then we move into our big questions about the very nature of time travel itself, which comes with all of these stories. Is time linear? Could it be circular? Uh, what are the experiences of time through the eyes of a time traveler? What, what does that do? What are the paradoxes involved? So we'll ask all those questions kind of as they come up as well. I, I have to mention there's a classic, now classic Doctor Who line for that. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Another question that oftentimes comes up in these types of stories, does morality or right and wrong or good and evil, do those things change on a long enough timeline? If you don't know quite what I mean by that, we'll talk about it more and more. It will become a major point throughout the story. A big question, well, these are all big questions. I'm in the category of big questions here. I think Chrono Trigger and really, ultimately, Chrono Cross and most Final Fantasy games have this question somewhere at their heart. How fragile is intelligent civilization to either moving backwards dramatically or being completely eliminated? That's, uh, that's often at the end of any of these games. You're trying to save the world from whatever. But there's a really nuanced look about the fragility of humanity and intelligent civilization going on in Chrono Trigger. And probably not finally, because I'm sure we'll discover more huge questions as we go through <laughs> this thing. Uh, but I wanted to ask this. Is Lavos, or the Cloud of Darkness, or X-Death, maybe? Are, are they parallels? Or is that a fair parallel? Galactus. Mm -hmm. Is Lavos evil? Because Lavos is the primary antagonist, or threat at least, in this story. Right. But it's n unclear. Right. And so we'll ask that question a couple of times. All right, so let's start the events of Chrono Trigger.
Chrono Trigger begins with uh, the morning breaking over this part of the world. Our hero, uh, a young man with spiky red hair, the first spiky hair we'll see in a Final Fantasy. Oh wait, is not fun. Alright, so our hero wakes up, woken up by Lini's bell ringing in the town square and by mom coming up to the room and throwing open the curtains. I do want to point out quickly, this is considered a common creative writing sin. You don't start your story with your main character waking up. On the other hand, I think for Chrono Trigger, it works just fine. Mom gives our main hero named Chrono uh, an allowance of like five, five G or something, or is it GP or is it G? And then uh, the, the cat is there and the cat meows at you. And if you wander around the house, the cat will follow you around the house, which I think is super cute. And then mom reminds you that uh, your friend, uh, what was her name again? Luca. Because mom forgets the name so that you can name the character if you want. <laughs> <laughs> like this best friend you've had since you were a kid. So uh, mom reminds you that Luca's got this machine she's going to display at the Millennial Fair. And then uh, you go out on the town and you can do other things. But the idea is you go straight to the Millennial Fair. So as Ira mentioned, Chrono is our first spiky-headed hero. He is also a silent protagonist. We had silent protagonists in the first game because we didn't really need to say much of anything. The story didn't call for it. Uh, this is something that, again, according to some of the research I did, was hotly debated amongst the production team about whether or not to have it. The uh, main writer ended up winning the day and deciding essentially that he doesn't think that characters, main characters in role-playing games should speak because they should serve as a conduit for the player, the, the hand of fate, that you are Chrono. And so that the second you begin to give that character speech, you maybe change what the person would think they would do in that scenario. And it's a really interesting way to tell a story. It's done a lot in you know, MMOs or anything where you get to design your own character. Anymore, it's really not done with characters that are supposed to have their own personality and exist in a world with all of these other people. But I think it's a pretty great and clever choice here for Chrono. And it allows for some interesting writing moments. And I think it's also a part of why this game is so successful is that an unlikable main character, which can change depending on who you are, can really turn people off to any given game experience. But if you just get to project onto the main character and kind of make their personality whatever you want it to be with maybe a little bit here and there, you know, through animations, it suggests some personality for Chrono. But for the most part, you get to make that up for yourself. And so... I do think it's one of the reasons why this game is so endearing to so many people. Our hero, Chrono, or whatever you named him, heads to the Millennial Fair. It has been a thousand years since the founding of this particular kingdom, which appears to be less a kingdom and more a... I don't know what. I don't know what the governmental form of of this region is. I think Guardia... I think the kingdom of Guardia is correct. It's still a kingdom? Well... Because we do have a princess who we're about to meet. But there's also a, a court system, which is perhaps not a good example. All right. Our hero goes to Millennial Fair.
there are lots of things to do here. There's some mini-game kind of things. You can fight a robot designed by Luca, Chrono's buddy. You can bet on racing. There's a drinking competition. Uh, you can hit a bell. Oh, no, you can. it's that strength uh, or that feat of strength thing where you, you hit a thing and it runs up the, the runner to hit a bell. You can dance to music. There's a, a horror house. There's a lost kitten to find. There's... There's a lunch that you shouldn't eat. Right. <laughs> this is where we run into Biggs and Wedge. I think it's Biggs, Wedge, and Pierre or something right. like that. And you get, like you have to keep track of who's who in this little minigame. Uh, a bunch of little minigames. The, the Golden Saucer of Guardia. But this is the, the pioneer, something that a lot of people point out to because, as you just mentioned, Final Fantasy VII popularized role-playing games having extensive side content and mini games that you could go and play while you're you know not saving the world from impending doom and uh, but but it was done here first the first thing you do is walk into this fair and you just have your choice of all these different little mini games that you can do you can bet on the racing which is gambling right away that's interesting Uh, but i also love the feel and flavor this immediately gives the world and the time we're told that we're in 1000 a.d but what does that really mean to us? Well, we get the sense that this is like our own Renaissance time. They're having a fair. They're playing festive music. People are playing games. They're all dressed up. People appear to be having a good time. Uh, and, and so that gives us a good grounding point for what life is like in our base era. A couple of details I want to mention before we get into what happens next. There is a weaponsmith here uh, who will play an important part later. Uh, There are a lot of things to do and not do that will be important to a trial later. Like like you need to find that lost cat and you need to not eat this sack lunch and you need to... I think there's another lady that you can help. Also, you mentioned it's 1000 AD. AD is interesting. It suggests a couple of things. One, that this is an Earth parallel. Two, that there was some sort of a a Christ-like figure. And three, that Latin was spoken in this world at one point. So it's an, it suggests an Earth-like, or an Earth parallel, because of the Latin and the Christ figure. A.D. stands for Anno Domini, which in Latin means the year of our Lord, referring to Jesus Christ. I'm not sure they meant to have this be an Earth parallel necessarily. For one thing, the right. continents are not at all correct. There are monsters, there's magic, so on and so forth. I think it was just meant as a shorthand. Uh, I, I think it's not meant to be taken too literally. They could have used BCE before Common Era and CE Common Era, but they chose to go with BC and AD. I guess make of that what you will. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I lean toward I think what you're saying there at the end, which is it was probably just a shorthand, and they knew that everyone would know immediately what they meant if they used AD. And BC. I don't think BCE and CE were quite as commonly understood in 1995, maybe. Uh, and also, we should mention the name Ted Woolsey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, and we'll talk about him more in just a minute and why he took the H out of Chrono's name. I don't know, but some of these two look. Without Ted Woolsey, maybe we wouldn't have gotten some of these games. So we're not going to give the guy a huge hard time like a lot of people do. We love our Spoonie Bards and all the weird translations he made. Uh, Well, I don't know that we love all of them. There are some weird ones we'll talk about in this game. But 
the guy brought us some of our favorite experiences of all time, so we're not going to jump up and down on him. But I, I almost would bet it was a Ted Woolsey decision. <laughs> Could be, yeah. So at some point, you've got to go uh, up the stairs to this other little area, and you will almost immediately run into a blonde-headed, white-clad girl with a pendant. You'll knock her down. Knock her on her ass. <laughs> First thing. Well done, Chrono. Way to make an impression. And here's one of those things you can do wrong if you don't talk to her before you go get the pendant that she obviously dropped. They will accuse you of having tried to steal it. But you, uh, you meet this girl. She says her name is Marley. She has lost her pendant. You give her her pendant back. She decides you're a good dude and, and wants you to show her around Millennial Fair, which you can do. Again, there's a variety of things to do or not do. She wants to buy candy at one point. Don't get away from the table too quickly or, or they will accuse you of having like rushed her around the place. And then eventually there will be an announcement that Luca's demonstration is on. So you go to the far north of the Millennial Fair. There are a couple of teleportation pads here. And Luca and her father show off their teleportation machine. It's, it's only a teleportation of like four feet. But um, they, they need a volunteer. And Chrono is nothing if not a enthusiastic volunteer. They make it work. He, he sort of disappears into these motes of light. He goes over to the tele, other teleportation pad. And there it is. It's pretty cool. Right before we get into the good crazy stuff... Uh, it's worth noting that the young woman that we've quite literally bumped into introduces herself as Marl, who I think we used to call Marley, but I, b- I believe is properly pronounced Marl, uh, and, and that's what I call her now. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to not say Marley. I will try. <clears throat> it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> but, Fair enough. So even though it hasn't been explained to us in-game yet, Though there are some pretty strong hints, what with the special pendant and her wearing white and the beautiful blonde flowing hair and all of that, that she is, in fact, a princess, something we'll find out here pretty shortly. And the reason we bring it up is because that's she's going to serve a very similar role in this game as Rosa and Lena and Princess Leia and other rebels versus empires, princesses who, who join with our ragtag group of heroes She's right in line with those characters, another thematic tie to the rest of Final Fantasy. And Star Wars, which, of course, itself is tied to Final Fantasy. We are also introduced now to Luca, uh, Chrono's longtime friend. She Purple is an inventor. nerdy glasses. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorites. Uh, she is our technological guru in this game. She parallels Sid in a lot of ways. Her technological advancements, the teleportation pod here, is going to be key to the time travel shenanigans that are about to start happening and also i think it is hinted at that the technological advances of the far future we're going to visit here in a while uh, have something to do with her there's a another character uh, who is a robot spoilers (laughs) (laughs) this this podcast all about spoilers who she has a lot to do with so she is our technological character and from that alone she parallels the SIDS of Final Fantasy, but also her technological understanding is at least partially responsible for the story happening to begin with, which also parallels SID. If SID had not created the amplification devices in Final Fantasy V, if SID had not created the airships in Final Fantasy IV, or Final Fantasy II, or Final Fantasy III, 
she does also have a bit of that irascible nature that I so love in Sid. Oh, I should have chosen Luca as one of my Sids for the top ten Sids podcast. Oh, see, neither one of us were clever enough to think of that. Well, I thought of it now. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that we want to take away from what these characters represent or, or are on their own, but it is useful and sometimes interesting to find those parallels from other games uh, and other stories. Agreed. And, and speaking of what they are on their own, there's a great dynamic here between Luca and Marl that I really love because I think in just about any other story, these two personality types would naturally be made to fight and bicker. Uh, you know, Marl is the runaway from home princess who seeks adventure and wants to, you know, go to a fair and have a random guy show her around and buy her candy. And Luca is so focused on her technological advancements and, and science and logic. They are sort of the, the Kirk and Spock of nice. this yeah. world, right? And, and, and it works that way. They very quickly become friends, and I just love the way these two characters play off of each other throughout the game. So having seen her new friend get to teleport about five feet, Marl decides she also would like to do this. So she hops up on the pad, and Luca and her father fire up the teleportation machine and uh, she disappears into motes of light just like chrono but then then something goes wrong and the music the uh, the, the something goes wrong music kicks in <laughs> and luca and and her father start trying to f- figure out what's going on and fix it and then this sort of bluish black hole opens up in reality and people are are scared and they don't know what's going on and the motes of light disappear into this little portal thing, and then you see the girl in pain and, and crouched up, and, and the portal expands, and then it contracts, and the girl is gone. But her pendant was left behind. Mm-hmm. Luca figures out pretty quickly that the pendant is responsible for the, for the malfunction of her teleportation device, and she thinks she can get this to work again, But who's going to go after her? I was playing Final Fantasy Tactics the other day for some research for this podcast, and you get into uh, a battle. Uh, This happens several times. You get into battles, and there's just somebody on the other side of the field. You go, hey, we should save that person. In fact, one time it really comes back to bite you. Um, Yeah, yeah, it does. (laughs) F that guy. And upon one of those, but upon one that doesn't, uh, saving Mustadio recently, I walked into that battle and in choosing, after all of these terrible things have happened to Ramza, to go ahead and try to save this person, I thought to myself, what would a Final Fantasy hero do? Whatever would get a Stark killed. <laughs> nice. And I feel like this is for Chrono a, I'm going to do the super brave and heroic thing that in Game of Thrones would get a Stark killed. But this is Final Fantasy or Chrono Trigger. And so I'm just doing the super brave thing. <laughs> He and jumps be... into a portal. He's just like, yeah, sure. I'll put on the pendant and go through a portal to God knows where, searching for the girl I just met 10 minutes ago. You're darn right, because it is the right thing to do. And we were talking earlier about, do these characters, does, does it matter what they do? Do they have agency, or is their free will taken from them? Well, I think Chrono shows pretty darn clearly that he, and thereby we, have free will in this game we you know even though the game is scripted and we're only gonna we can only do what we can do it's it's important that he chooses to do this 
though it's surprising that we've just now gotten to the point of mentioning this, this was one of the first games that famously made it so that your choices in-game did have repercussions. There are multiple endings, and you've hinted to a number of choices already that can change, kind of, uh, right, <laughs> the, right. the, uh, the way the story is told. Uh, again, something that's a bit meta, something the creators are telling us free will has consequences. And sometimes one of those consequences is you get sucked into a time portal back to the year 600 A.D. or 400 years back in time. Though he doesn't know that immediately. That is where Chrono appears after, I would say quite foolishly, jumping into the time portal. Right, so it is clearly still Guardia. Uh, the town, even though it's 400 years before, is laid out in much the same way, though there are some differences, and it becomes clear to our hero fairly quickly, I think, that he has traveled back in time. Yeah, I, I think they do a good job of just allowing us visually to put those clues together without there being a movie theater where he could see that some movie from too long ago, <laughs> like they were doing in a <laughs> uh-huh. TV show. Uh, Field of Dreams. When Field of Dreams does it. Back yep. in time. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Everyone is relieved that Queen Lini has been found. Apparently she went missing, kidnapped by the various goblins and, and monsters and whatnot around. That's right. They're called the Mystics. Yes. So that puts our characters firmly in the technological Imperial camp, if we want to use that particular trope. So she has disappeared, but she's just been found, and that's great. And our hero is able to figure out by getting into the castle that Lini is actually Marley or Marl, excuse me. All right. So, so he goes into the castle and he sees Marl and she's dressed up in a big fancy dress, but it's obviously her. And she says, you know, I want to talk to you in my private chambers, uh, which the chancellor is not too hot about. But once we've, uh, once we're alone together, she says, Chrono, it's so good to see you. Thank you for coming after me. They're mistaking me for my great-great-grandmother. And then, quite horrifically, she begins to scream in pain, and we see those little points of light again, as though she's being torn apart, and she disappears. Yeah. And then there's this weird thing that happens where Chrono Trigger breaks the fourth wall in a way that Final Fantasy VI would do pretty regularly. It kind of presents itself as a theater piece. But instead of there being like a human that comes and explains something to you, a goblin, for some reason, I have no idea why, explains the grandfather paradox at this point, which is well understood through, for example, Back to the Future, where if you go back in time and you mess up, your parents getting together, or you kill your grandfather. That's what it came from. If you go back in time and you kill your grandfather, you'll never be born. And it creates a strange paradox. And we discover that in this time, something we've done since coming back in time has made it so the actual queen, Lini, has been kidnapped by the mystics. And therefore, if she remains kidnapped or is killed, our new friend Marl can never be born. Begin the time travel hijinks. <laughs> 
At this point, Luca shows up. She has figured out how to uh, stabilize the time portals because she is, after all, extraordinarily brilliant. She's got a little wand key thingy that she uses to, to stabilize the portals when you find the portals and then use them to travel where you want to. Uh, though there are only fixed point in points in time they can travel to, which will become apparent as we continue. So they need to then figure out how to rescue Queen Lini so Marl can be born. So Chrono and Luca make their way to... There, there's a little church in a, in a forest nearby. So they make their way to this church because that's the last place that, uh, sh that Queen Lini was seen. And they, they quickly discover that none of these people are actually nuns or priests, but they're all monsters or mystics. And they're, they're about to go in when they are joined by another monster, or at least a non-human. Frog's real name is Glenn, which we won't find out for a while, but he is a knight of the realm, and he too is looking for Lini because he knows that the person who was rescued is not in fact the queen, because he and the queen are good buddies. You explain what you're about, and he quickly understands. I think a humanoid frog is not in too great a position to be questioning time travel. So he buys it pretty quickly. And one of the things I really love about this scene, too, is that at first, Luca's really grossed out by the frog. Oh, yeah. She's, she's, she's like, not having it at first, and she's really made uncomfortable by it, and she's having a hard time getting used to it. Uh, but, yeah, maybe the fact that he's speaking in Old English really helped her out. There's another, another Ted Woolsey thing that in the original Super Nintendo, a great idea, not the best execution of it. He doesn't do it all incredibly accurately. Uh, but there are some times that it works, his, his overly accented language, but it, it, they would smooth it out in future iterations. But Frog stands in that trope of, as you said, knight of the realm, honor bound. I'm going to do the right thing. He is Cyan. He is Steiner. He is not Oren. <laughs> That's not right. No, uh, no, not Those Oren. are probably good. Those two. Sure. And so since your goal lines up with his, he is going to join you. And just an immediately indelible character image, great theme music that comes with him that we'll obviously talk about, is anthropomorphic frog with a cape and a sword, just kind of, I don't know what the word is. Well, his image is striking. It is uh, unique. You're not going to mistake this character for any other character. It's also interesting how he is, and we're, we're skipping ahead here a bit, but how he's possibly a parallel to Cecil from Final Fantasy IV in that he is very paladin-like, which then puts him in opposition to Cecil from Final Fantasy IV, who, uh, who is a dark knight, right? So he, he, he plays the light side of that coin. He stands in contrast to Magus who is sort of our Dark Knight character in Chrono Trigger. If, if Frog is the paladin, then, then Magus is the Dark Knight. Agreed. And, and I also think he fits into another interesting category of Final Fantasy characters or characters in general with 
obviously who are introduced in their past is huge. How did this guy become a frog? Is the first question you ask, right? Um, where characters like Shadow and Amaranth, where immediately upon presented with this character, you want to know more about their past, and they clearly aren't who they used to be. And the the changeover that happened there becomes a very interesting one and an integral moment to both the plot and the themes of this story. So our heroes uh, are able to find these sort of back rooms and, and dungeons and cellars of this so-called church, and they fight off various goblins and, and snake people and other monster types. So uh, eventually you find a, a big giant bug that is guarding Queen Lini. You're able to defeat it, and you save the queen. Hooray. So upon returning to the castle, having saved the queen, Marl returns. You've solved the grandfather paradox problem. That was quick. Well done. You, you've decided, hey, we, we avoided disaster there. We should probably get back to our own time. Uh, the chancellor of this time makes an interesting comment saying, we must create a criminal justice system in this kingdom to do away with such fiends. Uh, that will play a role here in just a moment, but it's interesting that these events inspired the court system we're about to become very familiar with. Frog, at this point, excuses himself from the party, saying that he has failed to protect the queen as the chancellor is still kind of chewing out our party. He says, I have disgraced thee, and he leaves. And there's this really interesting moment when Marl returns, and she says this line, and I wrote it down, because she's asked about where she went when she kind of phased out of existence there. And she says, I can't recall it all. I was somewhere cold, dark, and lonely. Is that what it's like to die? It gets really dark here for a moment. And I think this might have passed over me a little bit more as a kid, because right after that, Luca just falls to her knees and then says, welcome back. We're glad you're here. And then they immediately move into Marl being embarrassed that she lied to you about being a princess. Or at least she didn't tell you that she was a princess, much like Galif does with being a king in Final Fantasy V. But that moment obviously speaks to the depth of some of the ideas we're dealing with in this game, phasing out of existence and what it feels like to die. But it also reminded me of something that happens in Game of Thrones a lot, where there are a handful of characters that are resurrected from beyond the grave, and they, they speak about it in these kinds of terms. And I'll, that always sends a, a bit of a chill down my spine, this notion that you can come back from this place, but that it is, you know, we've talked about the void in Final Fantasy before, but this is a, an ambiguous idea to try to wrap your mind around that she can't even fully recall, but she knows she was somewhere cold, dark, and lonely. That word kills me, lonely. I think this also sets up, I don't think they were thinking about it at the time, but I think this also sets up Chrono Cross, where Sergei was both alive and dead at the same time. He, he both lives uh, in one version of events and has died in another, or barely even existed in another, right? He was like a child right and and so his existence in both planes of 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 existence is what sets up the shenanigans of chrono cross i feel like this is a 
it's not just a parallel. It's also a, we're going to continue exploring these themes later. There's also a really cute moment here where Marl asks Chrono if he still would have shown her around the fair if he had known she was a princess. And it's one of those times where it gives you the opportunity to answer. And, of course, pretty much anyone would say, of course I would. Of course. Um, except you terrible people out there who said no. <laughs> um, and then there's a funny moment where she gets to tie in the Back to the Future stuff by saying goodbye to the king and queen of this time and saying, I hope you two get along. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> make some uh -huh. babies and as Frog leaves in disgrace because he failed to protect the queen Luca who was grossed out by him at the beginning says Froggy you weren't such a bad guy after all and I thought that was a nice little moment and then they make their way back to the place the, the gate that Luca has created now with her new understanding of how this stuff works and they use the key that she has created so that they can go back home to 1000 AD and never have to worry about any of this time travel stuff ever again. <laughs> the end. Well done, the team. End. The end. <laughs> Except, no, they are immediately arrested by the Chancellor. At least Chrono is. Marley is not arrested. And this is where it's revealed that her name is Princess Nadia, right? Right. They, they call her Princess Nadia. Uh, Luca apologizes for getting her wrapped up in all of that horrible drama. But Marl says, it's the most fun I've had in months, reminding us again that she's the rambunctious princess who's been kept up in this stuffy castle and she was out for adventure. And if that meant her life was in danger from hundreds of years ago, then albeit. I love, too, that she says in months. It made me wonder, what was she doing a couple of months ago? If time travel is like doesn't make her all timeless. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Chrono is arrested and there is a trial. And this is a neat scene. Uh, I hadn't seen this sort of thing in a game before where we talked about all those things you can or perhaps should not do at Millennial Fair come into play. So it's, you know, Marley does not think that Chrono should be on trial. She speaks up in his defense. But the Chancellor and thereby the King insists that, well, we need to have some character references. So if you ate that dude's lunch, that's going to come back to bite you. If you went after the pendant before you checked on Marley, that's going to come back to bite you. If you didn't rescue the little girl's cat, that's going to come back to bite you. It ultimately doesn't matter to the story. Because whether you're found guilty or innocent, you're going to be put away in the dungeon and sentenced to execution because the Chancellor is corrupt. Right. But like you said, a, a classic scene, very memorable. It does change like items you can get, whether or not you're found innocent or guilty. There's a gameplay reason to want to be found innocent. Uh, like you mentioned, if you save that girl's cat, she will show up at the trial and say, he saved my cat. Uh, so it's fun seeing your choices from earlier in the game, not even that long ago, come right back. But there's a really interesting one here, too, because a lot of modern games, and I think Mass Effect really popularized this kind of branching trees and dialogues and making choices. Fable really tried to, but eh, uh, <laughs> people right. have all kinds of feelings about Fable. And part of the reason is this problem is too often choosing the good or the bad decision was just obvious. Do you kill the person or do you let them live? Like if I'm trying to play as good guy, I let them live. If I'm trying to play as bad guy, I kill them, right? There's a moment during the trial. It begins with the defense lawyer saying, Chrono didn't kidnap anybody. Marl found him and demanded that he 
show her around the fair, which is exactly what happened. But then the chancellor says to you on trial, Chrono, okay, so whose fault is all this then? Is it yours or is it hers? And that is a messed up question. And there's no obvious and easy answer to that. Right. It is the answer, it's her fault. That's not going to help you out too much, even though that may be the truth. And if the answer is, well, it was my fault. Yeah, the, the chancellor has set up a false dichotomy. It's a, it's a cheap right. speech and debate trick. Exactly right. And then, like you said, even if you're found innocent by every single juror, uh, they will throw you in jail for a couple of days solitary confinement anyway because this is still kind of a feudal system. So despite the fact that we inspired a new criminal justice system from 400 years ago, and they're still working out some of the kinks, the king right. can still just throw people in jail because he wants to. Right. And well, and I think that also goes to speak to, so, so I said your choices don't really matter because the story progresses as it would have, but sometimes that's part of the point of free will. You can try as hard as you can. You can do everything right. And sometimes something, either a force of nature or the, the system that exists in the world, will still kick you and, and while you're down, right? Right. And it also reminds us that while we're seeing, we've seen two different eras now, a Renaissance-inspired era and a Middle Ages-inspired era. And so, again, this is a reminder that while things might be brighter and, and more happy and there aren't as many problems in 1000 AD, there, this is still you know, a, <laughs> a society with a long way to go. Upon being thrown in jail, as any good RPG would have you do, you break out. Uh, there's a lot of interesting, little, fun, nuanced things here. But the long and short of it from a storyline perspective is Chrono breaks out of jail. Luca ends up showing up to help him break out of jail as he's doing it. Gives him the classic line, I came to rescue you, but you're rescuing yourself, so let's go. Uh, there's a classic fight here with this crazy, weird, steampunk dragon tank thing that the Chancellor brings out. To, to try to kill you and a great visual moment when Chrono jumps up on its back, swings his sword into its back, it explodes and then it's followed by this really weird and funny moment that you would only do in like a Super Nintendo game where the Chancellor and a couple of goons uh, have to make a, a bridge with their bodies across oh, yeah. <laughs> an ex uh, a, a hole that's been exploded in a big bridge another tie to Final Fantasy games by the way this battle taking place on a big bridge and it's not even the last time we'll see one in this game uh, but sort of a classic moment there both in terms of chrono jumping up on the dragon tank and looking awesome and then this really weird thing that happens with the the chancellor and his goons but it's fun and you, and you bust out of there but they're chasing you and so another really interesting decision by our heroes being chased by the chancellor and a handful of soldiers and of course at this point, Marl shows up and, and forsakes her father and is angry that they're going after Chrono. She finds out they were going to execute him, even though he was only supposed to be in solitary for a couple of days. There appears to be something going on with this Chancellor guy has an agenda. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, but in running away from a whole bunch of soldiers, they're surrounded. They get chased into the forest and they find another gate that... Luca now has the ability to detect with her magical wand key thingy. And rather than stand and fight or get thrown back in jail and reassess their options from there, and Luca does mention, she, in fact, I'm pretty sure she just directly quotes Spock at this point and says, this is completely illogical. 
<laughs> Why would you jump into a time gate if you have no idea where it's going to take you? But they seem trapped and cornered, and at that particular moment, there were no other options. Plus, Chrono is all for bravery and, and you know, <laughs> just jump in. We'll see what happens. And Marl as well. Obviously, she's looking for adventure, so they kind of coax Luca into it. They jump into this time gate, having no idea where it will take them, and find themselves in a room of strange metals and lights and fog. And what we as the viewer would understand are broken down computers. Luca, upon taking a look around, says this civilization here is so advanced, like another world. Which again, you can make a, a cross-reference to Chrono Cross, in which there exists a literal another world. And Final Fantasy obviously does this multiple times as well. Final Fantasy X, and so on. But they have not gone to another world. What we see is this post-apocalyptic landscape of quite clearly, anyone who's seen anything that's post-apocalyptic would recognize this. The sky is blacked out. There are ruins of skyscrapers everywhere. It's constantly snowing. There, or, or maybe that's ash from explosions and, and radiation. All of the people here, and there aren't very many, are sickly and barely look even human. They do have that advantage, though, of the, the machine. Like, like if you are... If you've been in a fight and you're low on HP and MP, you can go into these machines and they... The they Inertron. Yeah, the Inertron. That, that thing scares me more than just about anything else in this whole game because it keeps all these people alive, but they're still hungry. Yeah, it's a line that plays. So you can go in, in, a, in, you know, in the game and you get in the Inertron and it says, hey, your HP and your MP have been restored. And you go, yay! And it says, but you're still hungry. And... Upon first playthrough, I always thought this was kind of a joke line, just kind of like, oh, and, and there's even a little sound effect that some, you know, grumbly tumby. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. you're still hungry. But this, it's actually really sad and a commentary on the kind of lives that these people are living and that hunger, that constant hunger that would come when almost all of the resources on a planet are wiped out. So while our characters don't quite know it yet, they are in the year 2300 A.D. So they have gone way, way into the future. And upon rumbling through some of these domes and trying to figure out where they are and, and what's going on, Luca drops a classic Star Wars line saying, I've got a bad feeling about this. As well she should. So in crossing through ruins and in their search to discover what to do next they find a group of people and an old man who appears to be if not the leader at least a, a sort of spokesperson for them and again they're all starving and just kind of sitting in corners they look awful and they explain that they haven't had food and and, and all of this and that there there hasn't been gardens there haven't been plants and they have there's a like a piping system underneath them. And they warn our characters not to go down there because nobody has ever returned. 
they sent a guy down there, right? Because they, they know there's food down there, and they sent a guy down there, and he hasn't come back. And they've done that a couple times, I think. Right. And so our characters, of course, go down there anyway. <laughs> right. Because we've already established hesitate. that they are foolish says, of heroics. Yeah. yeah. They find, after you know, fighting off the machine that made it clear that, okay, this is the reason why people keep coming down here and dying, they find a dead man holding a seed and and they retrieve it and and they even remark on how sad it is and how it smells terrible in there and and they find a letter with a clue uh, that eventually leads them we don't have to give them the specifics of chasing the rat it's a fun <laughs> little clue uh-huh. uh, but essentially it just tells you the next place to go that there's information to be found and that there there might be a way back to your time if you go to this other dome so this seed uh, reminds me a lot of what would be a future movie, WALL-E. That is all about this, this version of Earth where all the resources have been eaten up. And they're waiting for a sign to go back. And WALL-E eventually finds the sign and, and shows it to Eve. And Eve tries to take the sign of there's life on this planet now. Or at least it's, it's able to sustain some kind of life. And so I really like that as a symbol of hope, despite having destroyed the planet through overuse in Wally, there is hope that it can be restored. Despite what we're about to learn about this planet, maybe even after that, there is hope that maybe life can continue in some way. It also reminds me that life can continue. Final Fantasy Spirits Within. The whole point of that movie is, you know, life continues. Life goes on. And then when, when Dr. Aki Ross sees that eagle flying through the sky outside the safe domes at the end, you know, even if, we, right. even if we screw up all of this, there is the hope that something might continue. And when you do return to the surface and head off to try to return to your own time, Marl and Luca and Chrono hand the seeds back to the old man and uh, a little girl asks him, what are those? And he says, they just might be our future. And that's kind of the only hope that these people have because as you then learn upon finding a computer that appears workable, or at least it's workable once Luca gets her hands on it, and uh, Marl makes a comment about, I guess you can just work anything, can't you? Any device. <laughs> and actually it's Marl who runs up and pres- she's, she literally says, what does this button do? As Luca's trying to find a way back, Marl cues up a video of 1999 AD, visual recording, the day of Lavos. The video feed shows a, an alien creature of some kind bursting through the, the crust of the earth. Uh, and there's fire and lava and ash and smoke. And not only does this alien creature burst through the surface of the earth, it also 
like fires these beams of, of energy. It's it's very uh, Godzilla-like, like we were talking about X-Death as maybe kind of Godzilla-like, or the planetary weapons of Final Fantasy VII are kind of Godzilla-like. This creature also, this creature called Levos, is kind of like that. It, it comes forth and it sends this whole planet into a post-apocalyptic nosedive. They had achieved a sort of technological utopia, almost. For what we, we will find out, this is actually the second time Lavos has destroyed a utopia on this planet. Uh, it's really quite profound. Our, our heroes have done all they can to help each other out, and it's all still a pretty personal story at this point. But, but even going down into the, the, that sort of tunnel system uh, beneath this futuristic post-apocalyptic city was a personal story. We we're trying to help these people. We we're trying to give these people hope. And now they have found that, in fact, the whole world has been put at peril in 1999 thanks to Y2K. Or, I'm sorry, the day <laughs> of Lavos. Right. Uh, I wonder how much fears at that time about the the millennium played into when they decided to to put that. But yeah, they more or less witnessed the destruction of humanity. They know because they've met these people that humanity technically survives, but clearly they're barely hanging on by a thread. And it's because of this event. They're shown the end of the world and how you don't get a little rocked by that. So what do you do, Drew, when you've gone way into the future, 1,300 years into the future, and you have seen the beginning of the end? What do you do? Well, if you're Marl and Luca and Chrono, and in this case we are, you decide, mostly Marl first, that you have to save the world the way Chrono saved her in the past. This must be done. And Luca, a little bit reluctantly, but having just seen not only the horror of the world coming to an end, but the aftermath of it, agrees. And Chrono, being a silent protagonist who is, perhaps, the hand of fate in this game. Well, if you continue playing the game, then you've answered your question, right? Chrono will turn to the camera and decide, you know what? It's time to save the world. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Join us next time when we find the end of time, drink in the Stone Age, and reforge the Masamune.